Father, thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the, the words of encouragement and challenge that come to us out of chapter 6 of Ephesians this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to different roles and positions and levels of authority and responsibility in life, and no matter what role, what level you've called us to, we know that we are far below you, that you are our master, our king, our father, our Lord. So pray that you help that, that to become more clear to us today in our passage and help us to know what to do with that reality and how we work that out in how we interact with love and and serve each other. So we give this time to you. We ask you to work through your word for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick icebreaker for you guys. I'd like you to turn to somebody near you and share either what was your first job that you had or uh, what was the other question? Caleb, throw it up on the screen. Keep, keep going. Uh, first job or uh, best or worst job that you've had. So just share that for a few seconds with somebody next to you. If you haven't had a job, well, congratulations. And uh, what kind of job would you like to have? You could ask that of somebody, answer that. So. If you've been around the block a few times and you're sitting next to somebody who hasn't been around the block that many times, you can share with them what your wage was when you first got your first paying job, too. It'd be a fun little history lesson there. What was your wage? Yeah. yeah my first job at the hardware store was three twenty-five an hour. Yeah. Hard to believe. All right, we've been working through the book of Ephesians, and we've we're almost done. We got one more week after this. And I encourage you to read the second part of Ephesians 6 this week. Read it a few times. Maybe pull out a piece of paper and a pen and write some notes, some questions. It is, um, it is unlike the rest of the book of Ephesians. It changes tone very much. And there's all kinds of stuff in there that is potentially very confusing to us. It is one of those passages that tends to get confused by people and has been for a long time. And so I'm looking forward to going through that with you, and I'd encourage you to prepare for that by reading it a few times this week. Caleb, it sounds like I'm ringing up here. I don't know if it's hard to hear out there, but maybe uh, somehow I got turned up in the monitors, but it's really booming up here. If you could adjust that, that'd be great. The mini-series that we've been working through has been focused on household relationships. So we talked about husbands, we talked about wives, we talked about parents and kids, and now we're going to talk about masters and servants, which really was a household relationship in the context that Paul is writing to with the book of Ephesians. There is a huge cultural divide, though, between us today and the people who were originally reading and hearing this letter read. Even though there is a significant divide, and there's lots of hurdles to overcome, I think we can bring out of this passage some wisdom and some practical application for our lives today. We're going to read the whole section right now. It's just five verses long, and then we'll slowly go through each section. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and if you're looking in a pew Bible, it's on page 979. So Paul's already addressed husbands and wives and parents and kids. Now he goes on and he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So you can see the situation is very different from ours, and yet somehow there are some similarities. Maybe as you read this, you find yourself uncomfortable, because it's talking about a social reality that we wish didn't exist, this idea of bondservant or a slave or, or a servant. The word used in the New Testament here is doulos, and different Bible translators try to translate it different ways. So if they're going to be particularly gentle, they'll use the word servant. And that's not all that offensive to us. We can kind of swallow it and, and keep going. Probably the best rendering of it is the middle rendering. That's the idea of a bond servant. So it's somebody who has usually voluntarily entered into a contract with someone where they basically put themselves in bondage to a person for a particular period of time in order to pay off a debt or to help him get a family member out of prison or debt or something like that. It's, it's voluntary. It's not like what we normally would think of as slavery. That is really the likely situation that Paul is addressing here. But, but also include that third idea, that of just flat-out slavery, where it's not a voluntary thing, and maybe you're born into it, and you're never going to escape. There's somebody who just owns you your whole life. That is the reality of what Paul is writing to these people about. Now, we could look at that, and we could say, well, we know that slavery is wrong. And we think about the history of slavery in the United States, which honestly is very different than what most people in this particular situation are experiencing, right? But some people come to a, a passage like this, and they, they get really worked up, and they get kind of angry and self-righteously judgmental against God or against the Bible because they would say, look, if this is the Word of God, and if, like you say, the Holy Spirit is working through Paul to write this, and God was addressing the subject of slavery or bond servitude, and he had the opportunity to denounce it and say, this is not good, this shouldn't be. And instead, he just gives instructions for how masters and servants are to relate to each other. And some people would look at that, especially if they're predisposed to rejecting the Bible, and they would say, look, God's okay with slavery, and I'm not okay with a God who's okay with slavery. That's a, that's a good, critical way of looking at this passage, and, and putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and wondering, how would somebody read this if, there's, if you're coming to this at the first time and, and they're not already committed to this as the Word of God? It could be pretty offensive, especially if not understood well. So we would ask, well, does God approve of slavery? If he had the chance to denounce it and just tell the masters, let your slaves go free, and he didn't do that, what are we to make of that? I think it's pretty easy to say that God hates slavery in the normal picture that we think of, American past slavery, chattel slavery. But this idea of an 
voluntary bond-servant relationship, God seems to be mostly okay with that. He recognizes that it's a mode for somebody who is in a tight spot to actually progress in life and in society, get themselves on their own two feet. It's so different than what we're used to, though. It's hard for us to imagine. But the New Testament actually goes farther than that and describes us Christians as servants and even slaves. So in the book of Romans, Paul, same guy, is explaining that before Jesus saved you, so if you're in Christ, before Jesus saved you, you were a slave to sin. You couldn't do the things you wanted to do, even if you tried really hard. And the things that you didn't want to do, you still ended up doing them. And to some degree, that is still true as we struggle against the flesh even after coming to Christ. But before being saved, we were slaves to sin, incapable of living the righteous life that God created us and called us to. Sin controlled us. Sin ruled over us. And then he says in Romans 6.22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and then he goes on to this argument, which we're not going to deal with today, just kind of in passing on the, on the way to making this other argument, he simply says, you're slaves to God now. Same word that we see in Ephesians for slave or bond serving. He says, you, if you're in Christ, you are, and he could have softened it, you're a servant, you're a helper, or a bond servant, or a slave of God. How about that? Set free from slavery to sin, you're ransomed and rescued out of that life of sin, a life of spiritual death, of slavery to sin, but you're not entirely free. You are still a slave, you're just a slave to God. This backs up the idea that we've talked about for a few weeks, that all of us are always under some authority. We're never above all other authorities because even the king or the president or the dictator or whatever is under the authority of God, even if he or she refuses to acknowledge that. We're always under an authority. We are never the sovereign ruler of our lives. So if you always will have to submit to something, someone, would you rather have your master be sin or your master be God? I would like to suggest that God is the best choice in a master. He who would give his own son to ransom and rescue a servant, a rebellious servant, is a good master. Now, the world will tell you that to be free, to be whole, to be fulfilled, to be happy, you have to cast off all restraints, all controlling powers. But the Bible holds up this idea of slavery to God as an ultimate freedom and fulfillment. That we as humans find our greatest fulfillment, our greatest freedom in submission to our rightful Lord. It's backwards than how the world thinks, but it is the way of peace and it is the way of freedom. The more you are a servant or slave to God, the less you are a servant or slave to sin. That's just how it works. Jesus himself says you can't serve two masters. In that point, he's talking about God and money, but it is a true principle. You cannot serve 
God as your master and sin as your master at the same time. So do you want to be free? Do you want to live a full life? Then surrender your life fully to Jesus. Give up your life for the one who gave up his life for you. We're supposed to be in Ephesians, so let's go back to Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So just like children are supposed to submit to parents and wives to husbands, bond servants are told to submit to their masters. Now Paul uses obedience here as a synonym for submit, and that's an important Christian truth. You can't submit to an authority and disobey that authority at the same time. It's just impossible. That goes for what Paul calls here our earthly masters and what he'll soon refer to as our heavenly masters. Obedience and submission go together. You can't have one without the other. Servants here are instructed to obey with fear and trembling, and we think, what's that about? Well, the fear and trembling is really the obvious part of this for the servants that he's addressing. Because if someone owns you and controls your life and decides where you sleep and when you sleep and how you work and how much you have to work and if you get to eat and if you get to see your family and just all of the things are controlled by that master, then it makes sense that you would fear that person and and tremble in his presence when he's giving orders or when he's having a bad day. Every bondservant in the Roman Empire, and there were millions of them, knew that fear and trembling was an appropriate response to an earthly master. But then the tone changes. Christians are to obey their earthly masters, Paul says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. We've all fulfilled our duty at work or at school or in the family begrudgingly because we have to. Maybe it was dad asking you to do a particular chore or the teacher's giving you an assignment like on the, the weekend of the big game and you do not want to do your schoolwork, but you know you have to in order to do the other things that you want to do. Or you know that your boss is paying close attention to you, and so you just, you got to do a good job today because you're being watched. That's normal. The whole world understands that. But what Paul is talking about here is something different. He's saying, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. This is a matter of the heart. It's a very different thing when kids decide to honor and obey their parents because they love their parents and want to honor and obey them, that's very different from begrudgingly doing what mom or dad says. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. He wants you to willingly, enthusiastically, joyfully surrender fully to God and in that surrender to God to submit to others who are over you in this life temporarily. Jesus addressed this heart matter when he was talking, when he's confronting the Pharisees. Jesus did a lot of confronting of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And so he talks to them who are, they're full of themselves. They're self-righteous. They're, they think they're following the law. They think they're good with God. They're dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. They believe that they are 
going to be accepted because of their following of the law. And Jesus says this to them in Matthew 15. This people, people around him, he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they're, they're worshiping, they're teaching, they're learning, they're obeying, but Jesus is not impressed because their hearts are not engaged. Their hearts are not submitted. They are not worshiping and teaching and learning and obeying from the heart. They're going through the motions. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants your heart. That was true then, and it's true today for you. Verse 6, he goes on. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. So God's not interested in hypocrites. He's not impressed by our acting. He knows when we are obeying and performing for the sake of pleasing people or impressing our boss. He knows when we're doing it from a sincere heart or not. He wants us to recognize that we are bond servants of Christ, that Christ is our master, that he owns us, that he is in charge of us. And as our master, he wants us to obey, do the will of God, but he wants us to do it from a heart motivated by love and thankfulness. He does not simply want your obedience out of a sense of duty or reluctancy or begrudgingly. From a heart thankful for what God has done for us. That is what he's looking for. Verse 7 goes on and it says that we should do this with goodwill and that we consider our service as to the Lord and not to man. So when we serve someone... When we do our duty, when we work at our job, when we do our schoolwork, when we serve the family, whatever it is, we are to do that as though we were doing it to the Lord, to Jesus himself, not simply to our boss or our teachers or our parents or whoever it is that we're serving here. So at work, we're to work hard, we're to do a good job not because our paycheck depends on it or we're looking for a raise or a promotion or just to keep our job or because we're afraid of our boss. But we work hard, we do a good job, even when no one's looking, because we're doing it as though we were doing it for Jesus. That's what he's getting at. Moms, when you're serving your kids, when you're making a meal, when you're doing laundry, when you're cleaning up, Again, can you do that as though you were doing it to the Lord? Not that Jesus would come in and make a mess in your house, but that you're serving the Lord primarily. You're serving your family secondarily. Students, when you're doing your schoolwork, even in that subject that you're not particularly good at and you don't want to do it at all, what would it look like for you to approach your schoolwork as though you were doing it directly for 
Jesus. If Jesus is your teacher, Jesus is your principal, how would that change them? Paul writes to the Colossians, and he gets to the point quicker with this. And this one short verse, Colossians 3.23, he says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. That would be a good verse to memorize. It's short, it's clear, it's right to the point, and it applies throughout all areas of life. So maybe you need to like write it on a sticky note and post it at work or stick it in your locker or maybe hang it above the changing table at home. Whatever it is, a clear reminder that whatever you're doing, do it as to the Lord. You're working for the Lord and not for men. Let's go to verse 8, back in Ephesians 6 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So there's this other, other motivation too. There's the first motivation of the heart, the love, the desire to please our heavenly master. But then there's this, if we're honest, we would say it's a selfish motivation. God's talking about a system of rewards here. Now don't confuse this with the gospel, with forgiveness, with salvation. You cannot do anything to earn your salvation, to get yourself right with God. Our memory passage for Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, makes that so clear, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you are saved, it is not your own work. It is not your own obedience. It is not anything about you that has allowed you to be saved. It is a free gift, the grace of God saving you. That's not what Paul's getting at right here. At the end of time, there'll be a great judgment. Actually, there'll be at least two judgments. Some people interpret the end times passages and they say, well, maybe there are three different judgments, but we'll figure that out eventually. We'll all know someday. So there's this this first primary judgment, which really determines, are you headed towards heaven or are you headed towards hell? And so your whole life is weighed in the balance, and all of us come up short, but those whom Christ has saved, we are welcomed into our Heavenly Father's heaven because of Christ's death on our behalf. If you are in Christ, you get to spend eternity in heaven with our Lord. And then there's this second judgment, this actually chronologically be before that judgment, but it's secondary in nature. And that's a judgment for reward. So those who are in Christ, their lives, their good works are evaluated, and God in his sovereignty rewards us differently. That's what Paul is talking about here. Some people are rewarded more than others. And you think, well, what could possibly be better than just eternity with our Lord? Why should we even care about these rewards? And yet, in this and a few other passages, God clearly describes this idea of being rewarded. In this verse, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. So any sacrifice, any service, any obedience... Any submission that you render to somebody else, it's the kind of good work that he's talking about here, as though it's rendered to God, that somehow comes back to you as a reward in heaven. 
Our sinful nature could kick in and we could, we could try to increase our rewards there. But Paul's actually suggesting there's, there's already a plan in place for how those rewards are doled out. So let me read that verse again. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So the, the freemen, the masters, they are used to being rewarded in this life. They naturally expect that they're going to get rewarded in heaven because, hey, everybody loves them. Everybody bows down to them, serves them. They're at the top of their game, right? But what Paul is saying here is that, yes, masters, you can expect some reward if you're in Christ, but servants, bondservants, slaves, you too can expect rewards. So let's do a little hypothetical math here. The beginning of the verse suggests that all that is done in service to another as though to Christ gets turned back at the end of time as a reward. If you're a servant, a bond servant, a slave, you will do a, or you have opportunity to do a whole lot more serving other people as to the Lord than if you are, say, the master or the owner of the slave. So in God's flipped upside down economy, you get to heaven and you get to that reward uh, judgment and those who were lowest on earth, who had the most opportunity to serve others as though they were serving Christ, actually going to reap a whole lot more reward. Because if you're a master here on earth, you're not doing as much serving. People are serving you. You don't have that opportunity. Now, if you're in the room here and you're thinking, that is great news. Yeah, if you're kind of already in the lower part of things, that's great news. If you're on the upper part of things, that's not such great news. Except that whether you're a master or a slave in this life. We know that we have a common master, and that master has given his life. And so even if we didn't get any rewards in heaven, at least we get heaven, which is far better than anything we can imagine right now. So it's probably a very sobering thought for the masters as they read this, as they process it, and they realize, like Paul's saying that my servants actually have a better chance of rewards than I do. But then Paul goes on and he addresses the masters even more clearly. He says this in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them, or to your servants. Treat them the same way. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So when, when he says to the masters, do the same to the servants, he means treat them in the same way. He doesn't mean reverse the roles and now they're the master and you're the servant and you, because that just destroys the whole social contract. It all gets messed up. He can't mean that the masters are to obey and serve their servants. Instead, he's talking about the way that they relate to each other. That the master is to relate to his servant as though he was relating to Christ. The same as the servants are to relate to their masters as though they are relating to Christ. So it's one thing for you, students, employees, to say, I'm going to serve my boss, my teacher, my principal, my parents, as though, as though they are Christ. I'm going to submit to them, I'm going to obey them, I'm going to serve them. Paul's flipping around and he's saying, teachers, bosses, parents, will you treat those under you as though they 
are Christ? How would that change our work relationships, our school relationships, our family relationships? Years ago, there was a, a fad, WWJD, and maybe you had a bracelet that said it, WWJD. It stood for, what would Jesus do? The idea was you'd wear this, and it would just remind you in whatever your situation is, how, how are you going to behave? Are you going to behave like Jesus, or are you going to behave like the world, or like Satan, or whatever? And I understand the motivation behind that, but consider how this kind of distorts the gospel. There were, there were lots of teens and students in student ministry at the time. They'd go to concerts and they'd get these bracelets and they'd get pumped up. I'm going to go back and I'm going to live like Jesus. But none of us can live like Jesus, right? And so what we ended up with was actually a lot of young people with a distorted picture of the gospel. They thought if they can just live like Jesus, then maybe they'll be accepted by God. They'll be good Christians. And then over the next few years, they realize they're failing all the time, and a lot of young people walked away from the faith, which they were never actually part of. They walk away from it. They abandon it because they think, this, this doesn't work. I can't do this. I can't live up to this standard. And that's true. And that's why we need the gospel. But if I was going to give you guys a bracelet for today's lesson, this verse in particular, I would have to put a few more letters on it. I would say W-W-Y-D-T-J, which doesn't have quite the ring to it. But it would stand for, what would you do to Jesus? So if we are to render service to those above us as though they are the Lord... And we are to likewise treat those who are below us as though they are the Lord. In any particular situation, in any structure, in any ranking, what would you do if the person that you're dealing with is Jesus, the Lord? So let's read that verse again. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul warns the masters to stop threatening their servants, and he does that by threatening them, right? He says, look, you and your servants have a common master, so stop threatening your master's servant. Each of us are the servant of Jesus if we're in Christ. And so when we're interacting with each other, we're interacting with another master's servant. How do you speak to someone who is the servant of your master? How do you treat someone who is the servant of your master? That's what Paul is getting at here. Now, Christianity did not dismantle the social structures of the Roman Empire. Christians were out, are not out in the streets picketing and protesting and going on strike in order to end slavery and bond servitude and all this stuff. Instead, they lived, like these verses explain, they lived counterculturally, choosing to love and serve each other irregardless of the social status. You ended up with Christians who were masters and Christians who were servants, and they loved each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They served and honored and blessed each other. And as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire over the course of a few centuries, that countercultural way of living transformed the entire empire. That's the kind of thing that Paul is getting at here. You and I 
both have a master who is currently reigning in heaven. He is the perfect and the final judge, and he shows no partiality. That's what Paul just said in that verse 9. This means he's not impressed with your title, with your salary, with your status, your last name. He doesn't think highly of us when we are successful in the world's eyes. We have lots of people under our authority. He shows no partiality even if we are the biggest of bigwigs. How does that sit with you? Does that seem like good news? Does that seem maybe like a little bit of a disappointment because you thought you were pretty impressive and God might need to take a little notice and give you some favor. But this is really, really good news. If God showed partiality, we would all be sunk. So if God limited his grace and mercy, just say to the Jewish people or just to men or just to successful people, whatever that means. Where would that leave us? But the gospel is really good news. And you may remember this verse from our study in Galatians a couple summers ago. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. He's not saying those things don't exist. He's saying those things do not matter when it comes to salvation. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is proclaiming the great news that God shows no partiality in whom he saves. So your ancestry, your social status, your job, your gender, your age, your language, your last name, none of that matters when it comes to salvation. Jesus can save you from your sins if you're the most powerful person in the world or the lowliest servant in the world. What you are and where you came from doesn't matter. You repent of your sinful, self-ruled life, and you trust in Christ alone for salvation. You, from the bottom, from the middle, from the top, you are saved. Also in Galatians, we see this verse. 4-7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So if we go back to our Ephesians passage, where it's talking about, yes, we are all servants of God. He is our master. Then when Paul's writing to the Galatians, he's taking a little bit of a different track. He's trying to make a different point. And he, he shares this even greater news that, yes, we are all servants of our heavenly master, but we are also sons and daughters of our heavenly father. That you were a slave to sin, And now if you're in Christ, you are a slave to God. But more than that, you are a son or daughter of God. And God, as our master, can rightfully demand our obedience and our submission. And yet he chooses to interact with us as a father and ask for our heart, ask for our love. The Father wants the Son to be motivated from a heart of love and thanksgiving to the Father, and so that is with our Heavenly Father also. In a minute, we're going to sing a new, our new song. It's, you've already won, and it declares the gospel truth that Jesus has already accomplished what is needed to save and to sanctify us, that he has made it possible for us to be adopted, not just transferred from one master to another, but adopted as children of our Heavenly Father. He's done and is continuing to do the work 
needed to transform us into the kind of servants that he desires to be, the kind of children that he desires us to be. To close the sermon, I'd like to lead us into worship of that one who has done the work to save us. I want to do that by reading this quote from Charles Spurgeon. So Katie Elliott, where is she sitting? Katie Elliott shared this on Facebook. If you don't follow Katie on Facebook, you should, because she's just always sharing good stuff. No pressure, Katie, sorry. But she shared this this morning. I thought, well, that fits great. So this is Charles Spurgeon. He was a great preacher, long dead. He said this, My hope is sure and steadfast because I am a sinner. And you put a period there, you think, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, Jesus is my righteousness. My faith does not rest upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is in what he has done and what he is now doing for me. Those are good words. Good words. Let's pray. Father, you are our master and you are our father. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that you would put in us a a sense of fear and trembling that we, we need to obey you. We need to honor you. There is no authority in our lives higher than you. And yet, Lord, that we would also be motivated by love and a thankfulness and a a heart that wants to draw near and to please and to to be in communion with you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, help us to sort those things out. Do in us that kind of work. We want to be faithful servants, and we want to be faithful children of yours. And we want the world to see what it looks like for a human to be living in the freedom that they were designed to live in, under submission to you. Lord, our world is searching for significance, it's searching for freedom, it's searching for uh, autonomy, and yet we know through your word that true fulfillment, living as a human as we were designed to live, only comes by submitting ourselves to you, living in that, that love relationship of father and a child. So we pray that you'd be working in our hearts. Even as we sing this song, help us to rejoice in what you have already done for us. We look forward to seeing you grow us and sanctify us more in the future. In Jesus' name.